0: Welcome to TNS, the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with David Steinhardt of the Commonweal Juvenile Justice Program, hosted by Steve Heilig.
1: Good morning and welcome. I'm Kira Epstein, the Program Coordinator for the New School at Commonweal. Today we're welcoming David Steinhardt to the new school to talk about new legislation passed in the state, a project that represents almost 40 years of advocacy work by David and by Commonweal's juvenile justice program that disbands the California state youth prison system and moves 4,000 at-risk juveniles annually to the care and supervision of their local counties. And now I'd like to welcome Steve Heilig and David Steinhardt to the new school at Commonweal, thank you.
2: Thank you very much, Kira. And welcome, David. Yes, thank so, you. Yes. So I was reflecting a bit on this talk uh, over the past couple of days and thinking we've been doing, we've had hundreds of talks at the New School now over the last dozen plus years. And this is actually one um, about one of the most longstanding programs at Commonweal itself, but we've never talked about it here. so. It's basically high time and it's particularly timely because of some developments that we're gonna talk about today. But um, I've been affiliated with Commonweal for almost a quarter of a century now in various ways. And our guest today has been there even longer. However, you know, Commonweal itself is a somewhat uh, remote place and most of our projects are not necessarily uh, headquartered there in terms of where people work. So I may, never have met David in person, except for the fact that we both wound up being fellows of a really cool small program, Gorbodi Fellows, that was a uh, way of recognizing and even funding a bit uh, people who were doing uh, progressive nonprofit work. So we got to meet about once a year for some time at a nice lunch over in Berkeley and actually you know, meet each other in person. And I could learn a bit about the work he was doing. Um, Now, though, it's really timely for multiple reasons that we'll talk about today, uh, what he has accomplished, and we hope to basically go through kind of a summary of uh, why the work is so important and where it has brought us to now, where he has brought us to, because he is a true pioneer in the juvenile justice uh, program. So welcome again, David, and I'd like to start with a bit of uh, personal info about you in terms of where where were you born and grew up and what kind of schooling did you do in your earlier years? Well, and thank you for that. And
3: uh, welcome everybody uh, to a topic that is um, a hot topic every day and every year now. And um, we will get down to, I guess, the nitty-gritty of what the new law does uh, for those who are looking for some details on that. Personally, um, I'm a California boy, a fourth-generation Californian. Uh, my great-grandfather came to California in the gold rush days uh, and uh, was a, a, a Jewish dry goods uh, a store operator and, and worked with some of the founders in the San Francisco Jewish community. Actually, I'm the fifth generation, fourth generation person who served on the Jewish family and children's board in, in San Francisco. Um, I went to school um, in, uh, born in San Francisco, went to school in Palo Alto, Palo Alto High School, moved across the street, went to Stanford. Um, and then uh, went to UC Berkeley Law School. So um, uh, that's, uh, that got me um, through my education and out into the world of work, which was a very challenging move in itself back then.
2: So you came out of Bolton, where did you first start working?
3: I, um, my first boss was Melvin Belli, and uh, many of you will be too young to know who that is, but he was a lion in the legal world. Um, a famous trial lawyer and a character who wore fancy suits and cowboy boots and moved the law of um, trials um, in, in um, uh, and um, trial evidence in a very important way. So it was a, a plaintiff's practice, a combination of criminal law and civil law. Uh, and he was so famous, uh, my job was to sit in the front room, 100 people lining up every day trying to get Mel and Belli to be their lawyer, and we would filter the cases, and then occasionally something wild would happen, like the Rolling Stones would come along. Um, but I, I was not really happy being a, a plaintiff a lawyer and working in that legal world. You know, I graduated from law school in 1968, I took the bar exam during the Yippie Convention in Chicago, for those of you who remember what that is. Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated two months before and Martin Luther King before that. Many of us coming out of law school in Berkeley were looking for something grand and noble and idealistic to do. So my time working for the famous litigation lawyer it was interesting, but uh, wasn't fulfilling in the way that I wanted. And so
2: I, I ended up moving on. And what triggered that? What was your first exposure to the issues that you ended up taking on?
3: Well, like so many people's lives, it was just an accident. I was just looking for something that I called noble and I took a job. I quit working for the big plaintiff's firm uh, and I took a job for $14,000 a year working for something called Social Advocates for Youth. And I was their lawyer and I started defending kids in juvenile court. And it was like a wake up. It was just so refreshing by comparison to what I had been doing before uh, because the juvenile court was... uh, it was not perfect, but it was about redemption instead of clients who, you know, I would visit in the San Francisco jail, adults, and they would view me with as much hostility as their lawyers. They viewed, you know, the judge and the prosecutor. Instead, it was a system that was about coming up with a resolution for each kid that was tailored to the kid. Um And it was young people. It was just very different. And I began to uh, thrive in that environment. And before long, we had opportunities to turn it into policy work.
2: I'm wondering if, you know, often in somebody who's, you know, you found your passion in that way, if you remember a specific person or case that kind of fired you up, that got you, you know, so committed into taking this on as your, your life's work. Oh, I, you know, one of my
3: earliest cases was visiting a judge that I uh, knew and respected and it was a young woman uh, who, um, I think she, her offense was shoplifting uh, and she had broken her probation commission her conditions and, um, and the judge decided to lock her up for two weeks over Christmas. And I was sitting in the courtroom thinking, are you kidding me? You know, I mean, and she cried, you know, and this was just punishment for a curfew violation or something like that. So while I thought the juvenile system was about redemption and helping kids, there were elements of it that were just so disturbing. And I remember that case early on as one. I mean, this, they you know kind of dragged this young woman out and locked her up in a juvenile hall in the Santa Clara County.
2: Uh, so I remember that. I mean, there are others, too. Well, yeah, and that was a, only two weeks is, you know, basically nothing compared to what a lot of people have suffered at that age. Right.
3: Well, you know, at the time, I mean, we're talking now um, 1970s and uh, uh, California was locking up just thousands and thousands of kids, Um, you know, we were locking up kids for running away from home, status offenders uh, for curfew violations, truants. We I remember the number 107,898 in in uh, I think it was 1978. We locked up 107,898 children for non-criminal uh, behavior like running away from home, uh, and and at the time the federal government had come into the picture, adopting in 1974 the Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention Act, which called for states to stop locking up runaways. And I mean, the progressive movement began federally and then seeped into the states. Uh, so, um, yeah, we were locked. And the youth authority will get to that. The, the 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 system that's now going to close down. I mean, we had kids staying for three and four years at a time in California, well over the national average. So it was a lock them up time. And we were a lock them up state back in those days.
2: So uh, I'd like you to, in as many words as you wish, if you could be- the state, the problem, you know, what was the setting that you saw and many others saw as wrong? I mean, what was the <coughs> the main issue you were to You know, it kind of divvied up into segments.
3: Um, when we were talking about um, programs for runaways, we were talking about kids who, had behavioral problems that were susceptible to treatment and more benign outcomes than being locked up. Uh, but when you look at what was then the California Youth Authority, our state training school, it was, it was a different picture. Um, and it was very interesting, you know, I came to Commonweal in 1992, but Commonweal had already for 10 years been working on Uh, a a whole policy effort around the California Youth Authority, the deep end of the system. So, um, I mean, I wanna talk about some of what Michael Lerner and Steve Lerner did in in those days um, early on. And you said, what was wrong with the system? Uh, I don't don't wanna talk too long on one answer, but just some of the basics. Uh, In 1941, California adopted the Youth Authority Act and created a state uh, training school system that was actually relatively benign uh, and offered um, education and uh, programming uh, to kids and was thought of as an advanced model in in those days. It also uh, took uh, young people out of the adult system where they were just going to prisons and jails and put them at older ages than, than even now into a treatment milieu. But after 20 or 30 years, the system started to turn ugly. It began to grow out of bounds. We began to, the politics, the right-wing politics of criminal justice began to get in the way. And so we saw kids being locked up for low-level offenses in, in um, institutions that were huge, but warehouses, six, seven, 700 kids in dormitories <clears throat> and kids who were taken you know, far away from home. Um, and, and the character of those institutions was just uh, getting horrendous. Um, uh, there were institutional uh, there were institutional incidents of violence, staff-on-staff violence, kids beating each other up. If I can screen share, here's a sort of a, a was an emblem of those days, which is the cages. So this is an example of the side of what was the California Youth Authority at the time. So these cages were um, used uh, to sort of hold kids being moved between um, cells and they had little student desks in there and they were they were they were locked in. I mean this is just kind of a a, you know a sort of a a little vignette of how kind of awful um, the thing um, had become. I mean there were other problems uh, as well. Um, long lengths of stay, Um, kids committed to the state for offenses like marijuana possession, uh, programs that were not working high recidivism rates. Um, And uh, Commonweal got into it in the 1980s and published a series of books. I don't know if anybody can see this. Looks like the text is backwards on the screen to me. Um, But um, uh, Steve Lerner, Michael's brother, Actually, uh, uh, spent time in the California Youth Authority and documented uh, the conditions that were just uh, uh, inhumane uh, for kids. Kids beating each other up at night. So, th- so the Youth Authority started out uh, as a positive um, experiment and kind of went downhill over the years and kind of stayed that way for a very a very long time. Uh, and then, you know, advocates on the outside, Commonweal and, and, and others. Uh, were, were calling for reform. So we published a list of uh, demands in, in another book that uh, was co-written by Steve Lerner and Paul DeMiro uh, in the 90s, uh, calling for nonviolent kids to not be sent to the California Youth Authority, for the institutions to be downsized to smaller institutions. Um, and, and so there was a pitched battle between the advocates uh, and lawmakers and governments at the time, and we saw no movement for many, uh, many years.
2: So when you got into this in a really substantive way, what were the first kind of goals that you had in terms of policy and, and law changing uh, better? Well, we knew it was
3: wrong, and um, the, the we outlined our, our goals for downsizing the state system, um, which by 1996 had grown to 10,000 California kids in custody and about 11 big uh, state uh, institutions uh, and plans to spend much more. So we called for um, uh, uh, lowering commitments. We had some counties that were sending many more kits relative to others uh, into the state. Uh, We called for um, 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 small units inside the the institutions, uh, a a bunch of uh, program measures that uh, would improve education and the responses uh, within. Uh, basically, we got nowhere. And it was clear that we were fighting politics. So the governors all the way until Arnold Schwarzenegger, even including Jerry Brown back in the good old days and Duke Magian and some of the others, you know, they they sided with the, um, the lock them up system. Uh, and remember in the 1990s too, those of you out there who have lived through criminal justice reform, in the 1990s, there was very little taste around the country for progressive uh, uh, prison reforms of any kind. Uh, and we saw juveniles uh, characterized as uh, violent predators uh, and a great lock them up mentality and drive from the federal government at the states and, and locally. It was very hard to make pro- progress toward reform. We had the goals in mind, but it was really tough. And we didn't get breakthroughs on that until
2: oh, almost the mid 1990s. I'm wondering if you could say a little more about kind of the, you say it's politics, but it's also psychology, I guess, uh, in terms of what is it that drives the tough on crime, lock them up uh, issue here beyond, and I have to bring this up, I think you can address it too. There's certainly a racial element in this, I think, uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, the system has always
3: been a system of uh, disparity. Uh, and a uh, system that locked up youth of color in uh, proportions way out of line with uh, their representation in the population. And this was always a, uh, you know, a, just an unacceptable feature of not just the youth prison system in California, but prison systems and jails all, all, all around the country. And we have spent decades trying to come up uh, with, with solutions. Uh, one of the biggest solutions that we were able to come up with was just to downsize the whole system and thus to suppress the total number of youth of color going into, uh, into deep end confinement in California. But even today, where um, just before the California youth prison system is about to close, there are only about 800 young people in a California youth prison system that used to have up to 10,000 but 55% of those uh, young people are um, Latino, um, and something like 25% are Black, which is three or four times their representation in the population. About you know 10% um, uh, white. So it's just uh, endemic in the system that. It draws, uh, it draws in youth of color. I mean, there's some very promising developments that legislators now in California are uh, super aware of these disparities. And some of the lead legislators uh, uh, are uh, persons of color who uh, have promoted successfully legislation to begin to break down these disparities. Uh, and, and one of the sort of uh, great new um, approaches and programs, <coughs> is um, uh, basically front-end diversion. And the state is now uh, Reggie Jones-Sawyer, who's an African-American legislator from Los Angeles, uh, sponsored a a bill to fund uh, uh, programs around the state that keep kids out of the system in the first place. And they're focused in neighborhoods uh, where there are high uh, rates of arrest for for youth of color. So we're coming up with solutions. uh, But uh, as the youth authorities in the sort of Bad old days stayed full of young people for lesser offenses
2: and so on. The racial profile was was not pretty. Uh, you say we've gone from ten thousand youth uh, held to less than a thousand. Um, you know, so what is the fear here that drives this? So, if, has there what has been the impact of that on, say, crime rates? I mean, the fear and the fear mongering goes on is that if you don't lock them up they'll be out in the street causing more crime. Yeah, um,
3: the, the theory that the more you lock people up, the the lower the crime rate has never played out uh, uh, very well. So uh, we have seen crime rates among youth in California plummet, plummet, uh, and the incarceration rates have gone down uh, and down together. So um, we um, just last, I guess, 2018, 2019, we arrested totally about 50,000 kids in California, uh, and the felony uh, higher level arrests were maybe mm, 15,000, something like that. That's a decline of 80% from 15 or 20 years before. So uh, we're in a progressive reform era. There's no doubt about it. California is way out in front of the pack nationally as a state that has adopted progressive reforms. And I hope we'll talk about some of those uh, in detail uh, before we're through. Uh, today. Uh, But uh, one of the main factors has been a declining uh, crime rate. So there's just less sense of retribution and vengeance against young people. Uh, And, you know, voters are still, um, they still favor rehabilitation over punishment uh, of young people. Um, And um, I mean, voters just approved, even in this last ballot round, um, the the uh, move to take back Prop 47. Um, they they disapproved of it. Well, I won't go into that. That's too complicated. But, um, well, I'll just stop there. So, give me another yeah,
2: So, uh, you know, again, on this point, I mean, you mentioned declining crime rate, which, from my understanding, has happened for all ages uh, and all over the country, really. Overall, the crime rates are a fraction of what they were in the 60s, 70s, into the 80s. I'm just wondering if you have a thought about why that is, because the you know yeah. this is the thing that a lot of people don't even believe when you tell them that because of all the fear mongering that goes on, you know,
3: and. Well, those of us who remember yeah. the three strikes laws in California that were passed in 1994, um, that was driven by fear of crime and rising uh, crime rates. Uh, and then around uh, the late 90s, 96, 97, 98, we saw crime rates in California for adults and juveniles begin to fall dramatically. Now, the people who were behind uh, Three Strikes and You're Out, um, the tough lock 'em up law took credit for that. But the analysts who've looked at that see you know problems with that in terms of timing. The drop actually began before the three strikes laws were adopted. So when people ask, you know, how do you explain the lower crime rates for kids or adults? in California, there's no handy uh, explanation, um, but there is a, a behavior change. People point to changes in law enforcement practice, community policing, for example. Uh, people point to an investment in programs for kids that are community-based and oriented around treating the root causes, whether they be mental health issues or uh, poverty issues at the, at the county level. Um, people, uh, Some people ascribe the crime drop to changes in gang behavior, where the drug wars um, kind of um, softened and uh, there were just fewer acts of violence around around drug activity among gangs. So we don't have a a clear and clean uh, explanation for why crime rates are down. Some people take credit. Uh, I think it's a a kind of collage of of factors uh, that are involved. The good news is that this is what's happening and we have adapted policy
2: uh, given, given that that, um, that is the case. And just to, on this same point, uh, you, many of the reforms that you're talking about and have pursued are focused on nonviolent uh, people, right? Yeah, you
3: know, um, we're gonna talk about what the a new uh, bill uh, closing the state prison system does. Um, and the fact is that the only kids left in that system now are those who have been found to have committed a serious or violent offense listed in what's called Section 707B of the Welfare and Institutions Code. Uh, back in 2007, um, the state youth prison system was full of kids of uh, a whole range of offenses, including a lot of nonviolent Uh, uh, Youth, Uh, And we, Commonweal, we were able to play a big role in a landmark reform in 2007 that banned commitments of nonviolent youth, all all but the kids who qualified as having committed one of these 707 listed serious and violent crimes would ban those commitments to the California Youth Authority which had just become the Division of Juvenile Justice. So um, policy-wise in California, we recognized that there was, you know, a difference uh, and that locking up nonviolent kids under horrendous conditions for long-terms with high recidivism rates at high cost, that that was a foolish policy. uh, And that was the beginning. Uh, Now uh, we're challenged by uh, a policy or a change that will take kids with um, more serious offense profiles and put
2: them back in counties. And we'll talk, that's problematic in ways we'll talk about in a minute. So overall, I mean, it sounds like you're leading to a, a general conclusion that the tough tough on crime uh, policies that dominated for a long time are not really a deterrent per se. You know, um, that's not really the, the reason crime has gone down.
3: Yeah, the um, stuffing has come out of uh, the deterrence argument. I mean, prosecutors will still say that locking somebody up for a serious crime not only serves their victim interest, but is a deterrent. Um, um, people submit uh, articles and studies uh, of proof, uh, either either way. But uh, we had a lot of studies uh, done um, in the 1980s and 90s around trying young people as adults and sending them into adult punishments and prisons. Uh, and the studies, uh, on balance, showed that those kids. Uh, uh, it, that that they did worse if uh, when they were you know let out or that um um that the, the deterrence factor
2: didn't work uh in terms of trying kids as adults yeah you mentioned the uh, drug war too and you know I, I worked a lot in that and i actually convinced our state medical association to you know favor decriminalization for marijuana and things like that and you know, it really, the argument that really took hold there among a lot of people, a lot of the physicians in particular, was that, you know, if somebody's breaking the law by just using whatever drug it was, putting them in a system with a lot of more experienced and seasoned and uh, yeah. perhaps serious criminals was the last thing you wanted to do in terms of training them to be worse off, you know? So that is yeah. gladiator school. We weren't arguing that, that drugs were good, but that this was the worst way to address that. Uh, yeah, and the
3: voters in California with Prop 36 and the marijuana reforms have, uh, I mean, public policy has moved uh, maybe slowly, but in a direction of treatment rather than, um, you know, incarceration. Um, it, we could talk about the whole national view of that um, as well. But the gladiator school um Element you describe it, it, it is real. Taking somebody with either a drug habit or maybe even a sale um, uh, history—I mean, we can—we can, we can sit and people argue about the level of culpability for selling drugs versus using drugs. But taking either of those people at the age of 14 or 15 and putting them in what is essentially a youth prison for three years, uh, where they're in gang fights and banging around with uh, having to choose a gang and um, where the programs aren't that good. And I mean, it just was a, it was just a bad plan. It was a bad plan and
2: um, we're, we're gonna do better now. Uh, one more we'll get, and then we'll get into your specific laws here too. Um, you know, in, in that context of arguing about the drug war, et cetera, I ended up with a somewhat cynical point of view that a lot of what was driving the incarceration, the prison industrial complex, as it's been called, was money. You know, I mean, one of the most active lobbies in our state, in California, is the prison guards and prison employees union. And they fight any lessening of, in my understanding, they fight any lessening of penalties because it keeps the bodies flowing through their system. And uh, that's how they're funded and are employed, et cetera, et cetera. So... I didn't, I came up with the impression that they didn't care about the actual crimes or the drugs or anything like that, but it was about, uh, you know, keeping the cash coming through. I have any feelings there?
3: Well, there's no doubt that jobs are at stake when you downsize or close um, uh, prisons and, and, and jails. And uh, uh, it affects not only the prison guards, which had a very strong union and still do in California, but jobs uh, all the way down the line, probation jobs, for example, we re-examining the role of probation Uh, in the juvenile justice system now. And they are um, the folks who um, advise the court on whether a young person should be locked up or be placed on supervision um, and and the like.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with David Steinhardt and host Steve Heilig.
3: The CCPOA, the Guards Union in California, definitely uh, was a stalwart of support for keeping the youth prison system open for a long time. But I have to say they were not unreasonable, and uh, and they kind of came came around uh, to not opposing um, uh, the downsizing in 2007, the significant downsizing. Um, so um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor then when we when we adopted the law that said you can't send nonviolent offenders to the state youth prison system anymore. And the uh, head of the Guards Union, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, actually went and visited mass, uh, Missouri, which had a, a model uh, a youth prison system, um, and came back and said, okay, okay, you know, we'll we'll adapt to this. And they talked about moving jobs from youth counselors in, in CYA institutions that were going to be closed over the adult system. So, um, yeah, money was involved. I mean, another angle that's always... Um, uh, kind of a hot button or issue is the use of private uh, prisons uh, run by corporations. Uh, and as California has had to downsize its adult prison population in response to court cases uh, through realignment and um, um, other uh, other measures, um, uh, there's been an issue about using uh, privately run, corporate run um Uh, prisons uh, uh, to take some of the um, people offloaded from state prisons. And in the youth sector, we've had examples of privately run outfits, um, right of passage, the old Arizona voice range and so on. So that's been a checkered uh, history um, as well. And in fact, uh, some of the new legislation, uh, Senate Bill 823 uh, contains a provision that the funding provided by the legislation uh, cannot go to a private corporation uh, whose main
2: business is uh, uh, locking people up. So that's a good uh, segue. Let's get into this uh, landmark new legislation. How did this uh, begin? Let me just ask. I thought of one other thing, if you don't mind, I'd like to add. Oh yeah, go ahead.
3: Just in terms of, first of all, um, a lot of our work at Commonweal was not just in California, but also national. So for many years, uh, we were funded by the Annie Casey Foundation to be prime advisors on detaining kids, locking them up before trial and and after trial. And we became kind of by accident, national experts on detention risk assessment. I know I, I, in the Annie Casey years, or 20 or 30 years that we worked with Annie Casey on the juvenile detention alternatives initiative, which was the gold standard on on detention. And I trained, I traveled to 30 different states to train judges and uh, police and probation people on detention alternatives and the uh, use of, of risk instruments, so you know uh, nationally we we saw uh, some very positive movement um, from the 90s and onward. And then I want to mention one other big national development, uh, which was the National Academy of Science doing um, a study on um, on kids and crime, and they came out with a, a report that uh, documented the um, the brain science of uh, adolescence uh, and its relation to crime. And so, uh, uh, I mean, they, basically they um, said, and many of you out there watching this know this, but um, they documented, uh, had presented evidence that young brains do not mature until age 25 and that uh, behavior uh, issues and mistakes need to be weighed in relation to uh, uh, maturity. And the United States Supreme Court embrace that body of science nationally uh, to create new limits on uh, life terms for people whose crimes were committed as juveniles. And so we have seen that developmental science and that brain science adopted nationally and in California in a very, very big way. And it's been an important driver of reforms, including the one we're uh, about to talk
2: about. Well, this has this has been a part of uh, some current work I'm doing in in the medical world too, with ACEs, as it's called, adverse childhood right. experiences, and so there's actually now mandatory training now that's coming up, and uh, it's a big push, a big movement with our new California Surgeon General in particular. So, yeah. Um, so the new law, um, how did it get uh, initiated? Well, in a way, it's a culmination of 20
3: years of uh, trying to prove that locking kids up in large warehouses far away from home with insufficient programming um, and in prison-like conditions is wrong. Um, So it really took us quite a long time uh, to get um, to this point. But we had milestone changes in 2007, I've already described. Uh, nonviolent kids out and um, and then uh, then now let me just if I can go to screen share for a second here you can see what's happened um, in in California in terms of its state youth prison system and you look back in uh, uh, 1996 we had nearly 10,000 young people locked up in 11 large institutions and right downhill here's the reform I talked about in 2007 where nonviolent kids were removed and here we go down to what we, what we have today. And it was in this uh, policy range, uh, 2004 to 2008 and nine, that we had a great surge of interest in the legislature among progressive later, legislators to stop the madness in the California youth prison system. Uh, actually, the reform began, I'm gonna go back here to 10,000, uh, when, when we had 10,000 kids in the um, California Youth Authority, part of the uh, stimulus for that was that it didn't cost counties much at all to send a young person into the custody of the state, was cheaper than keeping them locally. And so uh, a reform adopted back here, that was very tough fought uh, was sliding scale where we began to charge counties more to send kids into the state youth prison system. Then when we get back down to 2007, it was more on a policy level of, uh, you know, this is not working and, um, and so um, we're, we downsized. And then if you look, I hope this shows up as well. Here's the cost picture. Um, and this runs from 1996 to 2009. So in 1996, when we had 10,000 kids in the state youth prison system, it cost about $36,000 a year to quote service, if that's the right word, one kid. Now the population begins to go down and look at the cost. By 2007, 2008, it was costing a quarter million dollars a year uh, to uh, pay for um, a person, a single young person in the California youth prison system. And because they stayed for an average of three years, that was three quarters of a million dollars per, per sentence. And for what? For a recidivism rate that ran about two thirds after, after they were uh, released.
2: So, um, those are some of the some of the cost factors. But um, in terms that, of- That's policy, when uh, you've heard a lot of people, I remember people saying, well, it'd be much cheaper to just send them all to Harvard. Right. Uh, that was a byline that was adopted by
3: a number of people. Um, so, you know, I think your question was, well, what happened to uh, make a change? Uh, because we've been pushing for change for so long. The cost uh, that I just showed you uh, really triggered- our first governor's position against the youth prison system in California. And it was Arnold Schwarzenegger who looked at the cost and the results, oh, and the trouble because there was huge litigation. The prison law office had done a great job of suing the uh, youth authority uh, on programs and on uh, mistreating kids. So that uh, the new programs that were uh, in, uh, ordered by the court drove up the cost too. Well, Schwarzenegger kind of went wild on that. And he said, let's shut this system down. Well, we couldn't we couldn't do that, but it was the beginning. He was really the first governor to question the viability of the state youth prison system as we knew it, and cost was a was a big driver. You know what what happened then? Uh, three years later, uh, we adopted the downsizing legislation, uh, and uh, uh, there the momentum was already uh, underway. Uh, advocates uh, like our, ourselves, uh, National Council on Crime and Delinquency, the Youth Law Center. A lot of advocates were involved in saying the system needed to be reformed. And finally, after the 1990s kind of evaporated, the hysteria around um, violent crime and fear of crime, crime rates were dropping. Finally, we saw some progressive legislators in California step in and, 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 and really champion the cause of reform of the California State Youth Prison System. And this is where we really were able to make a difference because we, we made friends with those legislators. We, meaning I did, and uh, other key advocates. So uh, they're names that are now forgotten. My God, it was a long time ago. But uh, John Burton was the president of the Senate, and he was a mega force in uh, efforts to reduce youth incarceration at the state level in California. John Vasconcelos, uh, another another champion. Gloria Romero was on a tear. She, she, she was just... Fearless in um, in in convening advocates and presenting evidence that this was a system that uh, needed change. And Mike Machado, uh, uh, another one. And I'm leaving. I'm sure um, others out. But uh, you know who else was involved in some of this? It was Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff chaired a Senate Juvenile Justice Subcommittee uh, for a while uh, before he went to Congress. And uh, I didn't always agree with Adam Schiff at the time, but. Um, he he was had a sort of a reasonable view of, of the reform uh, that was that was needed. So um, we were able to do some very successful work in the legislature. We had sympathy from the governor. Uh, the politics of it were though that um, the uh, probation um, organizations, the chief probation officers of California, were very wary of shutting down. Uh, the state system, you know, we can't, these are violent kids. We can't handle them locally. Uh, What are we going to do with sex offenders that can go to the state now and get treatment? Um, And then prosecutors uh, were just dead set against us. They wanted the sort of pound of flesh approach of sending somebody off to the state to a youth prison system that had long sentences. So we can talk more about how the politics uh, played out, but we had you know, we had something rolling. Uh, it was like a sort of a D-Day in the legislature where where we we, we had the troops and the, and the arguments. Uh, and, uh, and
2: since that day, we've made a, a lot of progress. Well, the law itself, uh, as you mentioned, it passed by a very slim majority. <clears throat> Apparently a lot of lobbying against it, it sounds like, by all those interests.
3: Yeah, uh, you know, it was um, Governor Newsom who put this in play in 2020. Uh, And he came out in May. I mean, this is in the COVID um, uh, year, uh, in a budget year where where money was tight um, and uh, uh, where mega millions were being spent and state dollars on getting masks into California and so on. So again, cost of about $200 million a year to run the youth prison system cost was part of the thinking. But also Governor Newsom, uh, uh, was a a juvenile justice reform sympathizer. I mean, he had a platform of making the state youth prison system a kinder and better place oriented more around treatment than uh, around punishment. So he kicked it off in the May budget revision. And it was over a span of only a few months that the the Youth Prison Closure Bill, the Division of Juvenile Justice, DJJ, we call it DJJ, Division of Juvenile Justice. It was only over a span of a few months that the DJJ Closure Bill um, uh, got its legs and and was adopted. Um, And it was sort of um, a a three-pronged battle between uh, legislators and advocates on the one hand, the governor's office in the middle, and uh, the forces against closure, probation, law enforcement, prosecutors on the other. And they we tilted over months and months and had competing versions of of the bills. But, you know, the the case against closure was um, a strong and sometimes emotional one. So there aren't many homicide kids in the state youth prison system, but there are some. What are we gonna do, you know, what's a county with no facility gonna do with a kid who commits a murder or another violent crime, rape. You know, most of the kids in the California Youth Authority, DJJ, are there for armed robbery and um, aggravated assault. Uh, but even those offenses are viewed as public safety issues for counties. So that was one of the arguments against uh, closure. Um, and on the other side, <clears throat> some of us who were um, advocates of uh, for children worried about another thing, which is right now, if you send a young person to the State um, Division of Juvenile Justice, that is an alternative to sending them into the adult prison system. Um, so it, it, it's really offense-based. Uh, you qualify for being sent into the adult prison system, tried as an adult. <clears throat> if you're 16 or 17 and um, have been accused of a serious or violent crime, which is the same list of crimes for which you can be committed to the state youth prison system. So there's this push pull dynamic between closing the state youth prison system and needing to prevent an outcome where all those kids are suddenly processed into adult courts and prisons. And so a lot of um, a lot of the work in this reform went into coming up with safeguards if the state youth prison system were to shut down to ensure that kids with trans, what we call transfer eligible offenses, were not gonna be sacrificed to the to the adult system,
2: so it's now law. And what are the major um, major goals of you know for implementing it? Uh, you know, if you could summarize what it's going to do in a practical sense.
3: Well, um, why don't we talk for a minute about what the law actually um, does? And it is a compromise. It is a compromise. Um, I was going to finish that little story about the difficulty of getting it through the legislature by noting that um, the the deal was reached between the governor and lawmakers about a few days before the end of the legislative session. session, uh, And it was put into print and and uh, uh, and the bill, Senate Bill 823, to close the uh, Division of Juvenile Justice passed by a majority margin of one vote. 30 minutes before midnight on the last night of the legislative session. So it was very close and very tight, I we'll see. So let's talk for a minute about what it does and maybe a little bit about what was taken out of it and what it, what it doesn't do, because it is not the full-blown reform that a lot of advocates had, had hoped for. Again, it's a compromise, but the basics. Number one, the um, Division of Juvenile Justice, which now has about 800 young people in it, will stop accepting commitments from counties on July 1st of 2021. Intake, it's called, will close. At that point, counties will have to come up with their own dispositions for young people that they would have otherwise sent uh, to the state. So that raises the whole question of, well, what is the county's capacity to deal with or to serve a young person who can no longer go into the state system? Uh, There's a little exception, kids who are eligible for transfer Uh, can still be um, uh, committed to the state beyond uh, July of 2021 um, uh, and until final closure. And that's seen as an additional safeguard against sacrificing kids to adult court if there is no DJJ available. When will the whole system close down? The young people who are in there now will stay until they finish their sentences. So it's not uh, cut in stone. There's no end date. That's um, absolutely uh, known at this point, but we figure around 2024, the population will win it down to close to zero and and that'll be um, the end of it. But right now counties, uh, courts, probation, um, they're scrambling looking at uh, a deadline of seven or eight months from now when the state system will no longer be available for the vast majority of kids who, who could be sent there. So that's number one. So number number two uh, in the bill, number, key item is funding. Um, the state, uh, the deal that was reached depended on the state providing funds to counties based generally on the savings from closing the state system. Funds to counties that would support dispositions, alternatives, facilities and programs uh, for realigned youth. And it is about realignment, who can no longer go to the state. And so um, a realignment block grant is included in Senate Bill 823 that will rise to a level of $200 million per year statewide. And there's a formula for how it should be distributed. And then counties have to apply to the state uh, for those funds and submit plans as to how they're gonna handle these uh, um, youth that can't go to the state anymore, how they're gonna handle them at the local level. But um, every county is in flux right now trying to decide what to do. First of all, they have to look at their caseload. LA sends uh, half the kids uh, to the state and they're looking at converting uh, an unused county camp uh, to a more secure facility. Um, Other counties have no facility and don't know what they're gonna do. And so there's a great unresolved discussion about regional facilities or regional sharing agreements other questions are in play and unanswered. Uh, the state has a sex offender treatment program um, and there aren't many um, alternatives to that in place at the local level. So if you have a young person with a sex offense that would have gone to the state where there was a not bad treatment program, then how are counties gonna make up for that. Kids with serious mental health disorders and violent offenses going to the state, counties need to come up with uh, solutions they may not have Uh, right now uh, for that. Girls, there are about 25 girls in the um, population. They're at Ventura. Uh, When that closes, where are they going to go? So there are a lot of implementation issues around this. And the money is uh, from the state is designed to cushion the blow and solve the problem. But um, we we really haven't um, solved it yet. Um, A third uh, element of the bill has to do with something I already mentioned which is guarding against transfers of kids who were formerly committed to the state into the adult system. You know, if you're convicted uh, of a crime um, in the adult system, you, you, you go uh, to the adult prison system for the full term. So you could be there for 10 or 20 years on a, a string of robberies or well, probably not that long, but, but anyway, you're in the prison system for the full adult term. That's why the juvenile system is a benign alternative. The longest you could be housed at the California Youth Authority or the Division of Juvenile Justice is to age 25. Uh, So um, there are a number of adjustments were made to um, help counties develop programs that prevent the adultification of these cases. So we raised the age at which young people could be uh, kept under court jurisdiction from 21 to 25 locally. That's one solution. Another big solution that was taken out of the bill was something called a secure track where where counties could take a very serious or violent young offender and put him or her into a term of years in a secure local facility under new definitions. Uh, That seen is necessary because if we don't have that, prosecutors are going to say, well, I don't have the Division of juvenile Justice anymore, and you, county, you don't have anything that uh, uh, that addresses my needs as a prosecutor at the local level, and so if you don't have long-term secure local confinement, we're just going to try this kid as an adult and send him to prison. So, you know, that's still an ongoing kind of argument. Um, a third, uh, uh, I guess a fourth element of Senate Bill 823, and I'm, I'm almost at the end here, um, is um The oversight question, you know, the advocates pushed for a very big state oversight component to this realignment. This is realignment. This is realigning kids from state to local care Uh, and and advocates. And I was on the advocacy teams advising lawmakers on this. uh, wanted a a new office of youth justice in the health and human service division uh, so that the oversight of county programs under realignment would be operated through Health and Human Services, not through the corrections department anymore, and that there would be very strong uh, oversight functions. And that got into a huge battle, especially with probation, um, who takes the view that if you're going to realign cases from state to local care, probation, we, we know best what to do and don't tie our hands, don't make us adhere to cookie cutter programs and rules and regulations that may not be suitable between counties and so on. So that was that oversight uh, model was diluted and winnowed down. So there is a new Office of Youth and Community Restoration created by the bill, ombudsman uh, function so that they can investigate complaints about local custody and care, and ultimately that office will assume responsibility for all the state, uh, local funding of realignment and other juvenile justice grants that are now at the board of the state and community corrections. So um, that's in there too, and then and then finally. Uh, here's a big issue and a very, one close to home for me, data reform. Our state data system on tracking juvenile justice cases is incredibly outdated, operates on 20-year-old technology, doesn't provide information that we need uh, to assess programs or caseloads. I mean, that's the short version. So the new legislation requires the State Department of Justice to come up with a cost plan for a new data system that will help us make uh, much better plan, planning and decisions about about what happens at the local level. So you know, thank you for listening to all of that. I mean, it's a lot, but in a kind of a nutshell, that's what the that's what the new uh, uh, the new bill does, and a lot of unanswered implementation issues
2: in the wake of it. Well, it is a lot. Yeah, there's. A, it sounds like there's a lot in there. One element that I'm particularly interested in is uh, in the broadest sense, treatment issues. Um, you know the uh, Prison system in California has been called the biggest single uh, provider of drug treatment and medical care for kids and so forth. And so, you know, does this include, and and there's a lot of questions about the quality of that, um, and it's not just youth for everybody who's in there. Does this include reforms, improvements, et cetera, of uh, treatment uh, for psychological issues like we talked about, uh, the ACEs, et cetera, medical care itself, but particularly uh, drug abuse? Well, counties getting the state dollars for real, I'm gonna have to submit a plan that addresses the
3: program issues and quality. How will the programs they create serve the needs of of this caseload? But um, you touch on an issue that uh, is troubling in California, which is that uh, young people with more severe mental health disorders have always been kicked around in the juvenile justice and criminal justice systems. And so we have never come up with the kinds of treatment um, capacity, the, uh, the uh, interagency uh, sharing uh, agreements we need to do right by by the kids with mental health disorders. And, and many, many of those, I mean, they get, uh, forget about the state um, um, youth prison system. Uh, we see these young people who are uh, marginally or seriously mentally ill being tossed around, pinballed around at the county level because nobody wants to take control of them. An 18-year-old who's schizophrenic or has a, uh, such a severe learning disorder that they can't uh, really process in school. Um, counties are struggling now uh, about about what to do with them. And so the state system became a kind of repository for a lot of those cases. Um, and and they're, that very high needs population that's going back to the counties now, including juvenile sex offenders. You know, we, we really don't have, we don't have um, novel, proven, uh, a- adequate coverage, program coverage for for those kids, and that's part of the challenge of realignment. But it's an old challenge. I mean, the question is, how good were we uh, doing uh, doing there in the first place? Is the is the system more sensitive to Aces uh, trauma-informed care? Yes, indeed. We've seen counties and probation. Uh, on their own and without state mandates began, begin to adapt uh, their programming and, and their conditions of custody to um, a higher level of sensitivity to what you're talking about. Um, uh, the, the, the trauma history of kids that are in the system uh, and, and, and what it takes to uh, address uh, those issues and also not increasing that trauma. So we've seen big reforms in California around use of force in facilities, you know, pepper spray, shackling, solitary confinement, we've outlawed a lot. We haven't outlawed pepper spray. That remains a, an unresolved issue. But um, we've outlawed a lot of those uh, uh, old sort of dungeon-like practices in California based on what we have learned about trauma-informed care.
2: Over the long run of this uh, uh, work, you know, what... Um What do you think has made this this most recent, uh, you know, it is a breakthrough, Uh, what has made it possible? I mean, what kind of elements uh, that we haven't maybe talked about politically and and culturally have made it possible to pass this law and start to implement it? Yeah,
3: that's a great question. You know, I talked about 20 and 30 years ago, how we kind of got nowhere and we were just uh, tilting against windmills uh, and and being shown the uh, the door. so there are a number of reasons why this worked and why other reforms in the pipeline uh, are maybe going to work. maybe we can talk about you know raise the age and other other big reforms that are kind of in the uh, in the hopper here for future development but but the advocacy community in California has changed uh, dramatically uh, in the time I've been working on this I mean 20 years ago we were kind of a handful of uh, legal uh, advocacy people and program people and specialists uh, uh, walking around the halls of the Capitol trying to argue for reform. Now you have just this massive involvement of youth and formerly incarcerated persons, uh, uh, and and using social media, uh, uh, you have foundations funding uh, uh, projects on a wide scale to involve young people. In their own criminal justice destiny, so to speak, uh, and and they show up in these legislative hearings. They give lawmakers backing um, uh, at the board of state and community corrections, where I sit on the board. Uh, they come to our meetings and they are well prepared and vocal. And you cannot ignore this as a a force uh, for change in California. So voices of young people, and 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 the voices of seasoned advocates like myself and others who've been in the game for a long time. That's been a a, a strength.
0: You're listening to a TNS Conversation with David Steinhardt and host Steve Heilig.
3: You know, another factor is that we've seen rotation in the state legislature. Uh, a lot of uh, people of color, a lot of younger people, uh, a, a, a more progressive um, dynamic o- overall um, certainly a Democratic uh, Party dominated legislature with large majorities and, and within within the ranks of those lawmakers, some true champions of justice reform. Uh, so, you know, now Senator Nancy Skinner, uh, uh, Assemblyperson Shirley uh, Weber, Phil Ting, who chairs the, the budget committee, um, our friend Mark Stone, uh, the head of the Judiciary Committee in the Assembly out of Santa Cruz, uh, 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 and um, uh, Senator Bradford, uh, others. So there's just a lot of uh, push within the legislature on uh, the reform agenda. And then we have a, a governor who's generally friendly. I mean, he has moved in a rather guarded manner uh, on uh, all things juvenile justice, and and his attention has been uh, thrust in a different direction with COVID and so on. Uh, but um, having a supportive governor is always a uh, a key to reform. Uh, the declining crime rate is a backdrop that is immensely um, helpful, uh, and then uh, the adoption of developmental and brain science uh, as a kind of an overarching uh, driver of reform uh, has been important as well. So these factors are are coalescing to move California uh, forward at a relatively fast pace on juvenile justice reform. The uh, shutdown of our youth prison system is one manifestation. Um, We are not alone. Other states are are downsizing or closing their state training schools as well. But I would say California is at at the front of the pack in terms of the total um, uh, sort of
2: uh, menu of reforms that have been adopted here. You're working at this policy level so deeply. I'm wondering if you have had in recent years um, encounters with people who have actually benefited from your work that you, that, you know, somebody who you've met who has been able to tell you how this changed their life. Well, there's no
3: substitute for going into a facility, incarceration facility and talking to the young people who were in there and why they got there. And, you know, you get this view that from the outside that there are a bunch of hellraisers who deserve to be locked up. And then you go and hear their personal stories. And it's always very, very moving. Um, We hear the stories you're talking, I mean, I don't get a lot of phone calls saying, thank you, David. Because uh, after all, our work is completely collaborative. It's hard to say that we can take credit for this over a number of other organizations that are as solidly at work. The Human Rights Watch, the Children's Defense Fund, the National Center for Youth Law. what you do see there is um, uh, younger advocates. I mean, I've been around for a long time, and I'm one of the old, older guard. I mean, I know my stuff, but uh, we look forward to the day, which is happening now when, when younger um, advocates uh, um, develop the skills and, and apply them as they are doing uh, and kind of take over where, wherever we may eventually leave off. Um, one of uh, the stars in the new ranks of advocacy is a guy named Frankie Guzman. Um, And Frankie is um, a lawyer at the National Center for Youth Law. Uh, And he is a force in youth justice reform nationally and in California. And Frankie's story is that he spent six years in the California Youth Authority, locked up on a robbery offense, uh, and was put out on the street with nothing in his pockets, as he will tell you. Um, and he climbed his way up through law school and now is a prime advocate of reform. Frankie and I walked the halls of the California legislature in 2017 and visited, if there was a door we didn't knock on, I don't know where it is, in a successful effort to rewrite the uh, law of juvenile record sealing in California so that kids with uh, serious offenses uh, after they had done their time uh, could have their record cleansed and actually... Then could apply for jobs uh, without punishment and apply for housing and so on. So Frankie, Frankie to me is a, a model for uh, that you look to and you say, well, wow, you know this. Here's a here's a, a guy who, who was incarcerated for a serious offense, uh, became a, a, a youth uh, advocate and, and a lawyer and is doing good for so many any other people. I look at that and I say, that's thanks for me.
2: Yeah, you know I am. Um I think there are many out there. You will never encounter them in person, but they, if they knew what this work was, they would uh, express that. I've seen this with teachers who have worked in, uh, you know, in tough environments, and years later will encounter a student who has done well, and uh, it can be very rewarding and emotional. to See it in action in a real human sense. Yeah, I think the um, lawyers who are on the front
3: lines uh, get more of a. Client feedback. Um, I mean, I work a lot with the defense community, do trainings for them, and uh, we just filed an appeal in an appellate case that was badly decided on on record sealing. Uh, and um, you know, they're the ones who who get the thanks when when the right things happen. I mean, I I've been working for the last fifteen or twenty or more years on a kind of more rarefied level of the state state policy uh, where, um, I interact with those people, particularly in testimony situations and a, a lot through the board of state and community corrections. Um, but, um, uh, the, I, I, I'm not, I'm not certain I missed the one-to-one casework, which is just so difficult in the trenches of the court system where you're trying to do the right thing by kids. Um, but that's, that's where the, uh, that's where the thanks come, I think, uh, to the defense attorneys, uh,
2: who and sometimes to the prosecutors
3: who do the right thing.
2: Yeah. So we we've talked for over an hour here. I just wonder we have a couple of questions on the chat. I I think we we already started with this one was directed to you, which was what drew you personally to juvenile justice. Um, you know, um, I think we talked about that. But the other another one is what are some of the policy priorities in the next coming years? You know, what what what's the next steps in this? For
3: you. Well, I mean, I am constantly amazed that the train doesn't stop in California and that we are moving into ever more uh, uh, progressive um, uh, uh, zones. And in a way, we're, we're maybe moving faster than the capacity of um, of agencies uh, uh, and community agencies to, to respond. So as we de-incarcerate California, if that's what we're doing, we want to be sure that um, the public agencies we have in place and that the private private nonprofits that, that, that are in the business of helping young people, that, that they have the funding and the capacity they need. So there's a lot of work to be done to build that capacity. I mean, we have um, a, 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 a multiple efforts to enhance and increase the role of community-based service providers in serving young people in the communities that they come from reuniting them after their justice system experience uh, with education and jobs and so on not sending people away to to big institutions uh, halfway around the state uh, but again there's a capacity um, building challenge there and and we'll continue to work on that a front end diversion from the system you know we uh, had started to invest in um, in programs that would just keep kids out of the system who were being kind of over funneled into it uh, with, I mean, once you get engaged in the juvenile justice system in a formal way, um, there's, we can document that your prospects for re-engagement are greater than if you were never processed that way. So uh, front-end diversion programs uh, are another area that we want to uh, be able uh, to um, expand. Um, mental health uh, programs, I mentioned the gaps in our service capacity. I, uh, we we want to look at that. I've spent um, six or seven years now as the probably the lead state advocate on a record ceiling for young people, so that once they uh, complete their obligations uh, to the juvenile justice system, they can pursue employment and housing uh, and uh, higher education and military service uh, without rejection. So there's more uh, more work to be uh, done there um, as well, and then the whole implementation of this uh, realignment of the state youth prison system. There's just many unanswered questions about about capacity. I wanna mention one other thing. Uh, Last year, due to COVID, we we put a halt to uh, a proposed uh, bill by Senator Nancy Skinner that would have actually raised the age of the juvenile justice system from the current 18 up to 20 or 21. And the idea is to uh, uh, take the um, rehabilitative um, Goals of the juvenile justice system and the programs and services that are available, and make them available to young adults at age 18 or 19 or 20. Um, well, you know that's a that's a major a major shift uh, that affects a lot of agencies and a lot of individuals from courts to probation. Uh, you 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 name it. And there are a lot of cost issues that are tied to that as well. So that got taken off the track because of COVID, and it was just too big to process and given that, you know, in the COVID environment, the legislature operates at something like 20% of its normal speed, Um, they can't even get together in person by and large. So if, but I think that's a reform, raise the age, uh, bringing the, expanding the scope of the juvenile justice system, its promises and its programs. I think that is the probably a next big progressive step
2: in California, whether it happens next year or, or down the line. Uh, We have a comment here. Maybe it's a question or ask for a tip, you know. But uh, it's quote: I'm currently fighting a battle for a 13 year old boy who is facing a felony charge for exhibiting what are essentially trauma behaviors. He's been in foster care most of his life. Well, I'm happy to hear about all this work. I'm having a hard time squaring it with my experience with the judge and prosecutor who seem to want to lock up a child versus support rehabilitation. There's the question in a nutshell, really, right? I mean.
3: Well, I, I see the chat uh, request and, you know, the piece I focus on is 13 years old. 13 years old. Are we going to lock up a 13-year-old for act, acting out? I mean, they're probably the felony charge. Uh, how bad and how retributive do we want to be in that case? I mean, the fact is in California that we have 58 different counties and every county has its own judges and its own probation department and every county has its own personality of uh, criminal justice and juvenile justice. And so you've got some tough counties, tough counties where judges and prosecutors are unrelenting in, in their need or desire to uh, stay punitive uh, and, and, and not to embrace reforms. You know, we had a huge reform that the voters approved in 2016 that said you could no longer, a uh, prosecutor could no longer directly file an adult court on a 14 or a 15-year-old. And that was, a, that was seen as a, a big breakthrough. Uh, but that's being challenged in the courts in county after county, and its fate is, is uncertain. And it just goes to show that just because the legislature or the governor adopts a progressive reform, that it doesn't always sit well um, with um, people who have a different way of doing things or a different personality. I mean, you can look at California maps of red state, blue state, um, and, and just cite your own experience of how... Um, how um, sort of generally progressive in terms of policy uh, some of the um, valley counties are versus the coastal urban communities. You know, it's getting getting to a nice standard, even progressive result in California is, is a really tough haul. So I look at this question and it just does not surprise me. Judges are individuals, prosecutors are individuals, and the defense community is constantly at work trying to take the progressive reforms and make them work as they should in all places, but it is a huge challenge.
2: Yeah, the the same uh, person comments that is an endorsement of the CASA program, which I've heard great things about too. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, and that applies
3: mainly in the dependency area. Um, um, So um, those are court-appointed special advocates and they are ways in which um, Private individuals can volunteer uh, to um, uh, become an advocate for an individual child uh, that's uh, embroiled in uh, some custody uh, dispute in the the justice system, mainly, again, for the dependency cases. But we do have a big overlap uh, between um, uh, kids who are uh, charged with crimes and kids who come into the system because of child abuse or neglect. Uh, and that's another very, uh, that's another evolving
2: uh, area of law and a, and a very, uh, a very complex one, but that's a great program. Yeah, no, I've, I've had friends who have done it too. It's actually a very uh, extensive uh, training and everything that goes with it to understand what the needs are and how to to help there. Yeah, it's a great way for uh, private
3: citizens to, to experience uh, the justice system and to help young people. I mean, there are a lot of young kids who, Uh, and young, uh, who age 13 was mentioned, who are at a loss. They come from single parent families that have been disrupted. Uh, Maybe there's domestic violence at home. They've dropped out of school or they're in a school system that's no damn good for them. Um, And uh, you talk about ACEs. I mean, they've got ACEs in huge uh, quantity and uh, adverse childhood experiences. And uh, so um, those kids need help. And the And the system we have is is overwhelmed, particularly on the child welfare side. Uh, It's not just the juvenile justice system that's having to um, figure out solutions, but over on the child welfare side um, as well. we've had a lot of reforms. Uh, The group home system has been reformed in California. And I've worked on uh, the kind of crossover between uh, probation kids who are placed in the foster care system. We have some very good programs that uh, are paid for by the foster care system. that take juvenile justice kids. Uh, uh, Boys Republic is one that I've worked with for a long time. They have a fantastic aftercare program where they, when the kid is through with the program, they help them find an apartment. If they run out of money, I mean, a young person coming out of confinement who doesn't have a job and hasn't got a dollar to his or her name, that's the, the pivot point for trouble or success. Uh, And so uh, one of the things that happens in this program is that um, these young people, if they hit that point, can actually get a stipend to carry them through so they can pay their rent or whatever it is. So we have some very good programs that are uh, in California that are serving a probation caseload uh, through the foster care system.
2: So is there anything else you want to address here? I do see one question from Oren here about do you think that California's successes so far will serve as a model for the broader, for the country will spread around the nation some more?
3: Well, I said, I think we're in the lead. I hope I'm not bragging too much because there are many other states that are doing uh, you know great things on their own. In fact, California was not the first to begin to close down its uh, youth training schools. That movement began in Massachusetts and Pennsylvania in the seventies before uh, we were able to make, uh, make progress here. Uh, but uh, the uh, it's promising that the courts have embraced developmental science, uh, and that it has spread through the states as a kind of guide, guiding light for reforms at the at the local level. Um, we've seen incarceration levels a- a- around the country uh, go down, um, but I just I'm very proud of California and where we've been able to go, you know, point by point, um, whether it's solitary confinement or closing down um, the, what was the state's largest youth training school, uh, or reforms in education, which we really you know, didn't, didn't talk about today, uh, the record-sealing reforms I've, I've mentioned. You can't lock up a truant in California anymore. We used to lock up kids for not attending school. You have to use another pathway. So all in all, our record of reform has been really quite astonishing. Uh, and it's uh,
2: something to be proud
3: of. And it's not over.
2: So um, yeah, you say you're not uh, bragging, but I I think you've laid out here why when I hear Michael Lerner and others and myself even we talk about what Commonweal does, uh, your program is one that we brag about the most. <laughs> well, <laughs> A lot of people... hope we deserve it. <laughs> yeah, hopefully so. So so, David Steinhart, thank you very much for doing this today. It's it's an honor and and. Uh, really astonishing work in in the broader sense of some of the biggest problems uh, impacting our our culture and our state and beyond at this point. So I'm gonna turn it back to Kira here, but again, thank you very much. Thank you guys, thanks everybody for watching. Kira.
1: Yes, hi, Steve and David, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, and David, uh, thank you for putting a personal face to this story, it's so important and for all of your work through the years advocating for the youth of California. Again, we'll have recordings produced of this conversation available in about a week. Please consider making a donation to help us keep those programs going. Uh, Each donation is so important to us. If you've already donated, thank you so much. And we hope to have you at another event with us soon. David Steinhardt and Steve Heilig, Thank you for being with us at The New School at Commonweal.
0: You've been listening to a TNS Conversation with David Steinhardt and host Steve Heilig. Thank you for listening to TNS, The New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's TNS.commonweal.org. Commonweal Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.